Well, this morning, I want to conclude our short series on what the Bible says about leadership in the local church, and I realize that this topic is sort of a dry subject uh, in some regards and lends itself to more of a lecture-type format, but I trust um, that you've gained maybe some fresh insights into the wisdom and beauty of how God designed the church to be governed. Uh, And I hope you're convinced more than ever of how extremely vital it is to the life of this church that our leadership is set up according to the pattern laid out for us in the New Testament. And we've been talking about how based on the example of the early church that we see in the book of Acts and the pastoral epistles that we can conclude very very clearly that it, it was God's intention that the leadership of every local church should consist of two basic offices, and that is elders and deacons. The elders, which are referred to in the Greek with, by several terms, episkopos, uh, presbyteros, and poimen, uh, those men are entrusted with the overall pastoral oversight of the church. Um, Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 28, uh, is very clear. Here is Paul writing to or I should say, speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus, he said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then, of course, 1 Peter chapter 5, probably my favorite passage about elders in all the word of God, 1 Peter 5 verse 2, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, elders are Christ's under-shepherds. I'm not the chief shepherd. Uh, There's no chief shepherd here on this planet Uh, It is Christ. Christ is the chief shepherd, and we are his lowly, humble uh, under-shepherds. Deacons, uh, referred to in the New Testament as diakonos, the Greek term, uh, they come alongside the elders and assist them in meeting the physical and material and financial needs of the church in order to free them up to fulfill their, their spiritual priorities as the shepherds of the flock. And we saw Uh, A great example of this in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, when the early church was just getting going and and, uh, they were um, uh, buckling at the seams, Uh, more and more people were coming. Well, they had their first uh, administrative snag, and and that was uh, some of the widows were not getting cared for in a proper way. And so it says that the twelve summoned, this is Acts chapter 6, verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And they chose uh, these seven men. And they brought them to the apostles, and after praying for them, they laid their hands on them, and they appointed them to uh, help solve this problem uh, with the the native Hebrew widows and the Hellenistic Jewish widows to make sure they all got cared for equally. And while these are not officially deacons, um, 
we don't see the official office of deacon show up until later in the New Testament. I think we could call these prototypes uh, of deacons. In other words, they give us an example of what role the deacons would serve in the life of the local church. Now, the word deacon, diakonos, simply means servant or minister. And uh, it's, it's a, a word that's used hundreds of times throughout the New Testament. And generally speaking, uh, the diakonos uh, is, is really just the standard term for any kind of service or for anyone who serves. Um, and you can make a case that uh, you really don't have to have an official deacon board, per se, or a group of deacons, because anybody um, who is faithfully serving in the church, whether it be a man or a woman, would qualify as a deacon or deaconess. In fact, I came from a church where they had a group of uh, 40 elders. This was a larger church, obviously. Um, and then they had literally hundreds of deacons and deaconesses who never met as a deacon or deaconess board, like the elders would meet, uh, they, just, they just did the work of the ministry. And uh, all of us as pastors and elders who had people serving under us in, in various ministries, for example, I was a youth pastor, well, every year I was required to provide a list of deacons and deaconesses uh, to the elders, and uh, they were everybody who was on our youth staff. Uh, and that included college-age students, um, young married couples, uh, older parents in the ministry, uh, and of course, we wouldn't have let them serve on our staff if they weren't qualified uh, according to this list of, of, of deacons that we're going to be looking at this morning, but it was just interesting that there was never this official um, recognized group of deacons and deaconesses other than on a list of paper somewhere uh, they, would, they would show at the annual meeting <laughs> every year, and uh, just an interesting way or a philosophy. And it was in, in the spirit of this, this word diakonos. It's just, it's just the standard term for any kind of service or anyone who serves. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Paul even used this word to describe his own ministry as an apostle. He called himself a diakonos or a, a minister on a number of occasions. Now, in, in several places, three to be exact, the, the term diakonos is used to specifically refer to a group of people who are uniquely gifted and qualified and, and set apart for special service within the local church. One of those places is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul was just writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and he addressed it to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And so my thought is if why would Paul address specifically the overseers and the deacons if there wasn't an actual recognized group called the elders and the deacons and so we see as the new testament developed that the that the, the these two offices uh, were developing uh, as well the other two places where the word diakonos is used specifically for a, a definable group of, of people who were uniquely gifted and qualified and set apart to serve was in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and um, we read last week this entire section, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Let me just read verses 8 through 13 um, to remind you of the qualifications of, of deacons. Last week we looked at the qualifications of elders in verses 1 through 7. This morning we're going to look at the qualifications of deacons in verses 8 through 13. 
Paul says this, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where the official office of deacon is discussed in any kind of detail. Every other place is just kind of mentioned uh, in passing. And, and I think the, the, the focus, and I, I think it's clear, you can see this yourself, the focus of this passage is not on the role of a deacon, but on the what? Qualifications of a deacon. And, and I believe that God was purposely vague when it, when it came to what a deacon does to allow churches the freedom and the flexibility to utilize deacons and to meet their particular needs in light of their culture, in light of their place in history. But the fact that God has clearly provided us with a list of qualifications for deacons means, I think, that He expects every church to be inflexible in insisting that those who serve as deacons need to be properly qualified. And since they, they work so closely with the elders and our delegated authority from the elders and designated responsibility from the elders, deacons must be equally qualified as the elders with the exception of being able to teach. I think it's interesting as you look at these two lists, uh, there's lots of crossover and they're virtually identical, like I said, except for that one qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 that says an elder must be able to teach. That's the only one that's not transferred over really um, to, to the deacons. And so consequently, deacons uh, are not just deacons. Uh, oh, they're just de- deacons. They, we can kind of randomly recruit from the congregation. No, these men must be carefully selected, and before being allowed to serve in the official office of deacon, uh, a potential candidate must be carefully examined to make sure their life matches up with the qualifications that are laid out in this passage. Notice it says there in verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. In other words, the qualifications of of deacons are essentially identical to those of the elders. They're held to the same high standards uh, as elders are. And so this morning, I just want to work through the the eight qualifications uh, of a deacon. Uh, And uh, as we did last week, there's not 15 points this week. There's only eight points this week. Um, But I got a little extra something, something to throw in here towards the end. So don't think you're getting off that easy. Um, But let's look quickly at these eight qualifications of a deacon. He says, first of all, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. They must be dignified. This word means worthy of respect. In order to be a deacon, a man's moral and spiritual life must earn the esteem of those around him. He must be well respected by the rest of the people in the congregation. And, and this qualification, I think, corresponds with, with the apostles' qualification in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, that those who were chosen to provide food for the widows would be men of good reputation. That was one of the qualifications, that they would be men of good reputation. And so a deacon must act in a dignified manner 
and, and be serious-minded, not treating serious things lightly or acting silly all the time. He must be a respectable man, a man who has a good reputation. He must be dignified. Secondly, he must not be double-tongued. It says there, a deacon must not be double-tongued. In other words, a deacon must always be consistent in what he says. He can't be the kind of guy that talks out of both sides of his mouth. He can't have one tongue that he uses for this group and another tongue that he uses for this group. Uh, He can't be one who says one thing to someone and then turns around and says something completely different to someone else. He must be honest and trustworthy. He must mean what he says. When he says yes, he means yes. When he says no, he means no. He must be carefully bridling his own tongue holding it back from any kind of manipulative, insincere, or deceitful speech. A deacon is the kind of guy who just shoots straight with people and, and when he talks to them. Doesn't beat around the bush, doesn't get political with people, doesn't not really say what he means, he says what he means. And, and this is the bottom line. A man is only as good as his what? As his word. A man is only as good as his word. And so he must not be double-tongued. Thirdly, he must not be addicted to much wine. He must not be addicted to much wine. Now, this was the same qualification uh, for the elders uh, back in verse 3, not addicted to wine. Interesting, it says not addicted to much wine. So apparently the deacon can drink a little more than the elder. Oh, no, that's not what it's saying. Um, <laughs> the point is a deacon must not abuse alcohol. He must remain sober-minded, self-controlled at all times. And, and, and let me just talk to you about alcohol for a second. We, we mentioned this last week. Uh, well, I, just, I took some time to talk about um, my personal conviction about drinking as an elder, as a pastor, and, and, but, but just to think with me about, about alcohol. And I'll just tell you one funny story. When I first moved here uh, from California and somebody uh, invited us over to their home and they were very gracious, very generous, and uh, wanted us to have us in their home for supper and they put out the spread and as we were standing around getting ready to eat, uh, the guy came up to me and he said, he said, hey, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to ask you this, but I make a mean margarita. Do you want one? <laughs> and I was like, I looked at my wife and I said, welcome to Texas. <laughs> a little different, a little, little, little different world over here, you know. Uh, but it was an innocent question and I appreciated the guy. I didn't confront him and say, what are you talking about? I'm your pastor and why are you offering me a drink? I just said, hey, no, thank you. And it wasn't a big deal to me. Um, but, but we need to think about this, this, this issue of alcohol. In Bible times, wine was universally used as a common beverage. Um, in many ways, like it is in Europe today, you go to Europe and, and, uh, and that's just pretty much what you order in a restaurant and, and it's not that big of an issue as it is here. I mean, it, I guess I would liken alcohol in the Bible times to iced tea here in Texas. I mean, you sit down at the meal and you, you, pretty much everybody either gets water or tea, Right? It's just what you drink. You drink iced tea, whether it's sweet tea, regular tea, uh, you drink it. And so why was alcohol a common beverage back then? Well, because clean, uncontaminated water was hard to come by in those days, and so wine was the safest thing to drink. And I think it's important for us to understand that the wine that they commonly drank back then contained a lot 
lower percentage of alcohol than, than today's alcoholic beverages that are just kind of, kind of ramping it up, right? It's all about how much alcohol is in it. And I think also we could say that the social stigma and, and social evils associated with drinking in our culture weren't necessarily as big of an issue back then. Not that it wasn't a sin and there was problems, and that's why it's addressed in the scriptures, obviously, not to get drunk with wine. But again, this is my personal opinion here. And so don't take this as thus says the Lord, but because there are so many things available to drink nowadays, drinking alcohol is really unnecessary when you think about it. Uh, it's really just for the pleasure of it. Um, I mean, you've got Coke, you've got Snapple, you've got, I mean, you've got Sonic. I mean, you could sit there all day, every day of the week and have something new at Sonic, right, to drink. You've got Smoothie King, you've got Starbucks, you've got Jamba juice, right? Take your pick. And, and, and back then, drinking wine was a matter of necessity. Now, now it's really a, simply a matter of choice. And I think it's wise for those in positions of, of spiritual leadership to think through these things and, 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 and possibly limit their freedom to do certain things that the Bible allows them to do in order to not offend someone or to cause them to stumble. Paul said that... that, that that, that even though he was free to do certain things, he chose not to do them in order to win as many people to Christ as possible. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 9.22 that he became all things to all men. And, and he wasn't talking about, I, I do certain things that maybe other people might question so I can relate to this group of people or this. No, he says, I'm, with, I'm restricting my freedom. That's what he was talking about. He wasn't, he wasn't talking about pushing the envelope and, hey, I'm going to dress like this so I can reach this crowd or I'm going to go hang out at the bars to hang this crowd. No, he said, I'm restricting my freedom so as not to give offense to anybody. And so, again, we have to think these things through as Christians today, uh, but for the deacon, uh, they should not be addicted to much wine. They shouldn't be controlled uh, by, by wine. And again, we don't have a strict requirement that we expect all the elders and deacons uh, to take a to sign some document that I will not drink wine or drink alcoholic beverages while I'm serving as an elder or deacon. We don't do that. We, we, we leave that to the, each man's conscience. But the, the, the point is this, because we don't want to be legalistic about that. But, but again, I think it's something that every man who serves in that role should really think through seriously um, because uh, the higher up you are in the flagpole, as, it's, as they say, right, the more people see and so you just have to be extra careful. So, not addicted to much wine. Fourthly, not fond of sordid gain. Not fond of sordid gain. A deacon must serve with pure, genuine, sincere motives. In other words, he's not in it for himself. It's, he's not in it for what he can get. He's, he's not looking to get anything for himself. He, he's, he's, he's looking to give. Not, look, not looking to get. He's looking to give and to serve other people. So he shouldn't seek glory for himself. He should truly want God to get all the glory for whatever he does. And again, it's the same for elders. And I just read this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 2. It talks about how elders should uh, serve voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. I think this particularly applies to financial gain. There is the potential motive of 
pride and, 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 and human accolades and, and affirmation of people and being a people pleaser and wanting to pe- people to think highly of you. And that's what you're trying to get out of this is that, that how it makes you feel. But, but I think particularly, I think this sordid gain uh, applies to financial gain. And, and particularly with deacons who are typically the ones responsible for handling the church's funds, they need to guard against the temptation to have sticky fingers, right? I mean, how, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that, that, that a treasurer, a church treasurer or a deacon uh, was caught embezzling money from the church. And so uh, a basic rule of thumb is never count the money alone. And, and I would say it's better to count it with a posse, right? A lot less is going to happen when you've got a posse, right, than even if it's two guys, because two guys could be crooked. Um, but when you've got a posse, there's hopefully accountability there. Um, I always joke with people, they come up and say, hey, pastor, I've got a, I, I forgot my, uh, to put my offering in the, in the box. Can, can you tell? I'm like, I ain't touching that thing. So yesterday, somebody handed me the money from the, 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 the man up. Thing. I ain't touching that. Put it somewhere else. I don't want to have anything to do with that thing. Um, again, it's just trying to avoid any uh, even appearance of evil. Um, and we know the Bible has many examples of people who use their religious office to, to pad their own pockets. Jesus confronted the Pharisees for being lovers of money. When he was talking about stewardship, they were like, rah, 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 rah. you know, they were just giving him a hard time. They were scorning him because he was talking about not loving God. You can't love God and money at the same time. And they had a problem with that. Why? Because they were lovers of money. We learned about Judas in John chapter 12. Uh, it says that he was the treasurer of the disciples and that he was actually stealing from the treasury to, um, to, 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 to fund his own, his own lifestyle. And again, he wasn't the last treasure to betray the Lord for a few pieces of silver. Happens all the time. And so in order for a man to serve as a deacon, his character must be free from the love of money. He should be content um, with what the Lord has provided for him already. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, and this is true for all of us, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And so that's important for, for a deacon to not be fond of sword and gain. Number five, he must be doctrinally and ethically sound. He must be doctrinally and ethically sound. Notice in verse 9, it says, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He must be doctrinally and ethically sound. So while a deacon does not have to have the ability to teach, as it says. It's, there's not that qualification. Uh, I think at the same time, he must know and love what the Bible teaches. It's not like his relationship with the Bible doesn't matter. No, the, the mystery, the word mystery there, the mystery of the faith, means a revealed secret, and the faith re- refers to the whole of, of Christian doctrine. And so I think the, Paul's point here is that a deacon must wholeheartedly affirm sound doctrine and faithfully strive to live it out in his life. I mean, if we say we believe something and we don't apply it, we're guilty of what? Hypocrisy. And we violate our conscience. Hopefully, we haven't seared our conscience. And so when we're hypocrites, we're convicted about that. And so a clear conscience is is the result of obeying the truth of God's word that we say we believe. And this was a a theme uh, in in this letter 
Uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. Chapter 1, verse 19, keeping the faith and a good conscience. Chapter 4, verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, false teachers have seared their own conscience. And so in order to maintain a clear conscience, a, a deacon's life and doctrine must be kept in perfect harmony. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul, I love, love what he said there uh, to, to, to Timothy. He said, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Timothy, there's two things you've got to watch out for. It, it, it's what you believe and teach, and it's how you live your life. Basically, what Paul was wanting Timothy to avoid was to, to, to avoid heresy Be careful what you teach. Don't become a heretic and avoid hypocrisy. Don't become a hypocrite. And so to avoid those two pitfalls, and wouldn't you say those are the two greatest pitfalls in ministry? That that, that, that you're either a heretic or a hypocrite? Those are the two greatest things to avoid if you're in the ministry. And, And so Paul was saying, hey, pay close attention to yourself. Don't be a hypocrite. And to your teaching, don't be a heretic. And so the point is there needs to be Uh, consistency between what a deacon believes and how he lives his life. He doesn't say one thing at church and then go home and live a completely different way. Number six is he must be above reproach. Notice verse 10, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. We talked about uh, in the first week of our series, this word testing or tested, dakimazo, it's the word that was used to describe the process of testing a piece of metal to prove its genuineness, its, its usefulness, and if not, if it was not useful, it would be discarded as a, as a useless piece of scrap metal. It was also a word used in the ancient Greek literature uh, to refer to testing a person's credentials before allowing them to serve in public office. In other words, they needed to receive a stamp of approval before they could serve. And so Paul applies this analogy to, to the church and said the, the character of a potential deacon candidate uh, and also an elder candidate for that matter must be thoroughly examined and carefully scrutinized to determine whether or not they should be approved to serve in that position. I mentioned to you that it's the same in our world today for a doctor, a lawyer, a realtor, a stockbroker, um, an accountant, these people that uh, what they do for a living affects a lot of people significantly, and so they need to pass a very rigorous exam before they're licensed or they're certified. And, and so the test that a person must pass to become a deacon is this list of qualifications. This is the test right here, verses 8 through 13. And the one qualification, as we mentioned last week, that summarizes really all the other qualifications is this phrase, above Reproach. It was the same leading statement for the elder in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, which simply means that a deacon must live his life in such a way as to not give anyone anything to grab a hold of or to be able to bring an accusation against them. They must be blameless, which doesn't mean perfect, by the way. There's no perfect man on the planet. There's no perfect man in the church. This is not a perfect man standing behind his pulpit, okay? But hopefully there's a blamelessness in that there's no obvious defect or sinful blight of any kind that taints 
that man's reputation or puts his character in question. Alexander Strzok, written the two best books I'm aware of on what it means to be an elder, what it means to be a deacon. And this is what he said. He said, shepherds and deacons hold positions of sacred trust. They direct and care for the family of God. They handle problems, money, and needy people. They have access to people's homes and the most intimate details of their lives. They have access to people who are most vulnerable to deception and abuse. Thus, they must be men of proven integrity. I think about this from time to time, and it scares me, the amount of influence that I have as a pastor and how easy it would be to take advantage of people uh, who are in need. Oftentimes, people will come to me at a very low place in their life spiritually, they're weak spiritually, and, and I could very easily manipulate that situation to serve my ends. Um, it's a scary thing. And so that's why we pray that God would make us men of integrity, that would never take advantage of people and never um, um, do anything that would uh, hurt people in order to serve ourselves. Notice he jumped, jumped down there to verse 12. Deacons, he continues the list here, deacons must be husbands of one wife. We talked about this last week. It's the same qualification back in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. We said there is lots of debate over the years about what does that mean? Does that mean a guy has to be married? Does that guy mean, mean a guy can't be a polygamist? Does it mean that a guy can never have been uh, remarried after his spouse died, a, a widower remarrying? Because uh, that means he would have had two wives. And does this mean he, he, he should never have been divorced um, uh, for any reason whatsoever? Uh, or does this simply mean that uh, being a, a husband of one wife, that he is a faithful husband, that his marital life is, a bu- is above reproach. He, he is a model of sexual purity, as I said it last week, that he's doing marriage and family well, that he must be the husband of one wife. In other words, he's above reproach, he's exemplary in his marital status, uh, in his family, in his marriage. I think that's the point. If you want to know more about that, you were here last week, listen to the tape or listen to the internet message and you'll get the full um, uh, description of what that could possibly mean there. Uh, Again, verse 8, a similar qualification, it says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. We talked about this last week. Uh, Verse 5 says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so I think Paul's point here is that the truest measuring stick of a man's management ability is not his business, but his home. A man's true character comes out in the way that he leads his family. There, there are some men who are, have been extremely successful in their business, but they've been a failure at home. Just because a guy is, is killing it in his, in his job doesn't mean that he's qualified. Well, he's a great manager. He's really a wise businessman. We need to get him on the board. Well, let's look at his family. Let's see what his fam- how his family's doing. If a man has a hard time leading his family and caring for the needs of, of his wife is, and his kids, then, then he's going to have a hard time leading and taking care of the needs of the church as a deacon. And so that's why he says here that he must 
be a good manager of their children and their own households. That is the, 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 the litmus test of a guy's ability to, to, to manage and to lead well. So there you have it, the, the eight qualifications for the office of deacon. Now you may have noticed that I skipped over verse 11, which I don't often do, right? I don't like avoid things. Like, oh, I don't like that verse, or I'm not sure what that verse means, so we'll just skip over it. Maybe nobody will notice. Well, I know you noticed that I skipped over verse 11. Why? Well, because I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about verse 11, because this is another one of those verses that is difficult to interpret. Right in the flow of the qualifications for deacons, Paul interjected a statement here that has resulted in, in, again, much debate among Bible scholars. He says this, Paul says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So the question that is debated is, who is Paul referring to here? Who, who are these women that Paul's describing and, and giving a, a little mini list of qualifications of their own? Some would say that these are wives of deacons, deacons' wives, the NIV, uh, the New King James Version. If you've got a copy of that, you probably see it says that, deacons' wives. They actually made that uh, translation choice or that interpreted decision in, in their translation. Um, others believe that it was a special group of women in the church who helped the deacons do their job called deaconesses, deaconesses. Now, again, it's impossible to be dogmatic on this uh, issue because you can make a legitimate case for, for both interpretations. And, and those that take this to mean deacons' wives believe that the reason that Paul placed special emphasis on, on the qualifications for deacons' wives is because of the nature of the office of a deacon, that, 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 that their wives would, would naturally lend a helping hand in the care of the poor and the sick, and, and so consequently they should have the respectability that, that matches their husband's. And so that's really the argument for that this is deacons' wives. It just seems very natural. Uh, they're going to be kind of a team. Oftentimes, husbands and wives work as a team when it comes to, to deacon work. But in my opinion, I think that the weight of the evidence favors the latter view that, these, this, that, that Paul had in mind um, a special class of ladies in the church that we could call deaconesses. And, I, and there are several reasons why I take this view. The first one is the word likewise. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips. It seems to be introducing a new separate group or a third class or office, even though I'm not comfortable making it a class or an official office. But notice he says uh, in, in chapter or verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. And then he says in verse 11, women must likewise be dignified. And so it seems like he's introducing a new category, a new group. Secondly, the word woman there, gynekos, can be translated either wife or woman, depending on the context. It's not only wives. Uh, that's why the word here in, in the New American Standard, God's inspired version, says women. Okay, that was a joke, okay? This is not the inspired version. Um, so it could be either here. 
Uh, also, I think it's important to take into account that there's only one word for deacon in the Bible. It's the word diakonos, and it's a, a masculine-feminine word. It's, it's used um, interchangeably. It's a, if you will, it's a unisex word, if I could say it that way. Um, and so the only way Paul could refer to, to, to women in verse 11 would be to use the, the, another word, gynekos, since there's no feminine form of diakonos. So if he wanted to say... Uh, uh, diakonos there, they, 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 there wouldn't have been any distinction between uh, the men or the woman here. And so that's why he used the word woman. There's also no possessive pronoun. It doesn't say their women or their wives must likewise be dated. It just says women. Um, and if Paul wanted to say their wives and make it clear, he could have said their wives, but he didn't. He just said women in general. I also think one of the the hardest things I can't get past is, is why, if, if, if Paul thought it was important enough to give qualifications for deacons' wives, why wouldn't he have also give qualifications for elders' wives? You think that would be even more important, right? Um, a man serving in, in, as an elder that, hey, what about his wife? And so um, you, you, you would assume he would have mentioned in both lists, but it makes sense why he didn't... Uh, why he didn't mention women, I think, in, in verses 1 through 7, because the duties of elders are for who? Men. It says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Um, so it's clearly a leadership role. And the fact that he mentions women here in verses 8 through 13 shows that they can fulfill deacon duties because it's a serving role. It's not a leading role. It's a serving role. I also think that these qualifications parallel perfectly those of male deacons. And then lastly, there's a, there's a, there's a chick in the Bible named Phoebe. You ever heard of her? I like Phoebe. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul highly commends this woman. Romans 16, 1. I commend to you your sister Phoebe, who is a servant, diakonos, of the church which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. And so here is this woman named Phoebe who is described by Paul as a diakonos, and she was a helper of many. And I think this is important. I, I love the ex- example of Phoebe here because it, it, it just reminds us of the important, vital role that women play in the life of the church. While they may not be elders and deacons or pastors, uh, they, can be, uh, they can be servants who help many. And so whatever Paul was talking about here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 we, we know that it must be understood in light of the rest of the Bible's teaching on the role of women in the church. And, and the overall context of the Bible, according to creation, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, is that God created the man first to be the leader, and then he created the woman second to be the helper. I will make a helpmate suitable for you. And so God's design is for the man to, the man to be the leader and the woman to be the helper. And again, th- that doesn't mean that she's in some way less important or some lower status. You know, no, God designed men and women equal. They're both created in the image of God. It's not um, their character per se, it's, th- it's, their, 
It's their function. It's their role. They, they're, they're equal, but they serve a different function. They serve a different role. In the wider context, uh, here in the New Testament, we know that in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul talks about uh, husbands uh, loving their wives and leading their wives and wives submitting to their husbands as, as, Christ, uh, as, as the, uh, uh, the, the church submits to Christ. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be their husbands and everything. So we see this being fleshed out, this, this God's design in creation being fleshed out in marriage in the New Testament. And then specifically in the immediate context, look back at 1 Timothy chapter 2, before Paul addressed the men in the church in verses 3, or excuse me, in chapter 3, he addressed the women. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. In other words, women are, are working all the time in the life of the church. Their lives are characterized by good works. But then notice verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And some would say, well, that was just cultural. That was just back then. Well, then why did he say verse 13? The reason he gave for that is it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. In other words, he takes that principle back to the, he bases that principle back, back on the created order of the man being the leader, the woman being the helper. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And so what Paul was teaching there is all women are good for is making babies, right? No, that's not what Paul was saying, all right? He's saying that it's interesting that while women may have been the one that led mankind into sin, i.e. Eve taking the apple in the garden, the fruit in the garden, guess what? They can lead, lead, the, lead the, uh, the, the mankind out of sin by giving birth to a godly seed, i.e. it was a woman who gave birth to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, along with the godly heritage that, that so many moms uh, are able to build into uh, their children and to leave this godly legacy through their children. I've said this before, but um, there is a woman in this church that has probably influenced this church more than I ever have. It's my mom. And she doesn't say a whole lot or do a whole lot necessarily. She's behind the scenes, but guess what? She influenced this church those first 18 years of my life when I was at home. And she was raising me to think uh, as a godly man, to grow up as a godly man, along, obviously along with my dad's instruction. But, but that's how a woman makes her mark on the world and her mark on the church it is raising the next generation of, of, of elders and deacons and pastors and teachers. And, and uh, they can have an amazing influence. So what Paul is saying here is that women are prohibited from assuming a leadership role over men or even alongside men, for that matter, in the church, 
and, and, and yet they can still serve an important role in the ministry of the local church. And again, the ministry of women is vital to the livelihood of, of any church because there are certain ministries that are clearly to the church's advantage to have women involved. Listen, you don't want to put me in charge of the children's ministry. Trust me, all right? I'd much rather have a lady in charge of that because she's going to do an, a much better job. Same thing with the women's ministry. That's why it says in, in Titus 2 that older women should be training the younger women. I'm just going to come out and say it. I, I know of uh, some churches where they feel like because the women are supposed to, to learn in quietness and submission that, the, 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 that the pastor or a man actually teaches the women's ministry because they don't want a woman te- in a position of teaching. Well, it doesn't say that they can't teach other women. It just says they can't teach men. And I just think that's weird <laughs> that, that, okay, I'm the pastor and I'm going to be in charge of the women's ministry and you ladies come and listen to me. And that's just, again, hey, it's within the bounds of the scripture. If that's what some guys want to do, some pastors, some elders choose to do it that way, hey, that's between them and the Lord. But to me, it, it, Titus chapter 2 is very clear. Older women are to teach the younger women. And so women are better equipped, they're better adapted than men to carry out ministry, particularly to women, to children. And there's a myriad of other practical needs that women can, can meet and tangible ways that they can serve in, in, in this supporting role or this helper role. And so if you want my opinion of what verse 11 means, I think this is a, a group of ladies that Paul had in mind that we could call deaconesses. You say, well, then why don't we have deaconesses? I've never seen a deaconess list anywhere. Why don't we have that? Well, just follow with me for a second here. I think the fact that that deaconesses are not given a separate paragraph, if you will, of their own, but are just kind of wedged in between requirements for deacons, it's just kind of like, he almost like mentions them, and oh, by the way, the women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gods, temperate, faithful, all things. And then back to the deacons. Um, it seems to indicate that these women were not necessarily to be regarded as, as constituting a third office, per se, with equal authority as the deacons, but they're simply to serve as the deacons' helpers. And the same way that the elders are assisted in their tasks by the deacons, the deacons are assisted in their tasks by the deaconesses. And so consequently, they must be held to the same standard as deacons. So all that to say, while we do not have an official list of deaconesses here at Lakeside Bible Church, if you want, I could go around and point out some of them for you, because I think there's, there's a lot of deaconesses running around here at Lakeside Bible Church, faithful ladies who are, who are, who are in this helping, serving role, and they, they fit this description. They're dignified, they're not malicious gossips, they're temperate, and they're faithful in all things. What does it mean to be dignified? They, in other words, they're looked up to by the other members of the church. They're well-respected because of their godly behavior, their, their faithful service. They're not malicious talkers. It's interesting, the word there, malicious talkers, is the word diabolos. that ring a bell? Devil. Satan, right? Satan is the chief slanderer of God and his children. And so when it comes to being a deaconess, she devils need not apply, is the point. 
A deaconess has to guard against the temptation to gossip and to slander. They don't spread stories around the church that are designed to injure the reputation of others. And this is so important because a deaconess could do tremendous damage to a church because her duties require to circulate among the church. I mean, she's running around like a busy little bee helping out everybody. And if she's running her mouth, she could just like torch that church. So they they can't be malicious gossips. But temperate, sober in all things, they exercise sound judgment, they have self-control, they have self-restraint, they're well-balanced in in every area of their life, they're not self-indulgent, they have mastery over their appetites, uh, drinking, eating, you name it, Uh, they they must not act rashly, but remain calm, cool, and collected. That's the same word that was described uh, of an elder in verse 2. And then faithful in all things. In other words, they're trustworthy, they're, they're honest, they're, they're, they're faithful in the matters entrusted to them. Whether it's great or small, they're faithful to their husband, they're faithful to their children, they're faithful to, to Christ, they're faithful to the church. May this group of women increase, may this tribe increase. Ladies, this is a great challenge, a great encouragement to you. And I think there's just something very precious and very sweet about this role of a deaconess that, that is really a truly kind of behind-the-scenes ministry that while we may not have an official list, we just know. We just know that those ladies, that lady right there, that lady right there, that lady right there, in fact, there would probably be a lot longer list of deaconesses than there would be for elders or deacons. Well, look at verse 13. And we'll wrap up with this. For those who have served well as deacons, and I might sneak in there, and deaconesses, (laughs) obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul concluded his description of the qualifications of deacons and, and deaconesses by telling them what they could expect as a reward for their faithful service. And notice that he didn't promise them thunderous applause or high visibility, some plaque on their wall, being promoted to the office of elder. By the way, that's not like a, a training camp. The deacons aren't a training camp for, for, for future elders necessarily. It's not like uh, that's the JV, you know, and the elders of the varsity. We, we don't view it that, that way at all. Being a deacon is not necessarily a stepping stone to be an elder. In fact, when we sit down and evaluate the men in our church for the office of elder or deacon, there are some guys that, that, uh, that we are very encouraged by, and we're like, well, you know, should they be a deacon or should they be an elder? And we're like, you know what, I can't see that guy being a deacon because that's not his heart. That's not his passion. His passion is shepherding. He's got a shepherd's heart. And then there's other guys that you're like, you know what? I can't see that guy being a shepherd because I don't necessarily see him doing that. But man, that guy can knock it out when it comes to administrating this deal or taking care of this person or has the gift of mercy. Or Man, they, they seem to fit the role of deacon better than the role of elder and vice versa. And every once in a while, a guy on a deacon board will rise up and you'll say, you know what? That guy's, that guy's definitely doing more shepherding than he is anything else. And maybe, maybe he needs to be an elder. And so again, there's not this promotional thing. Hey, guess what? If you're, a, if you're a good deacon, then you'll get to be an elder. It's not saying that. These are all temporal rewards. The rewards Paul 
was talking about here are spiritual. Notice the, the twofold reward that deacons receive for serving well. He said, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves, number one, a high standing. In other words, you're put on a higher step. You're, you're, put on a, you're considered a step above everyone else. Not, not that you're more important than everyone else, but people consider you more highly than the rest. Why? Because you've earned their respect and honor and appreciation uh, as the congregation comes to you and they, they thank you for your humble, selfless, Christ-like service. You'll have an excellent reputation in the church, in the body of Christ, and, and in the community. And most importantly, you will be held in high esteem in the eyes of God, who will provide you with even greater opportunities for ministry in the future. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 23, in the, the parable of the talents, when uh, the, the faithful slave came and, and, and had doubled his investment The master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of what? Many things. Not to put undue um, attention on any one man in our church, but I just, I love the example uh, of this principle that if you're faithful in little things, you'll be entrusted with greater things, and it's just something that just happens. It's an evidence of God's grace. No man can take credit for it, but the man that is about to become an elder today, Mike Goins, started off at this church as Captain Fun. And those of you that are, know Word of Life, you know what Captain Fun is. Some of you kids are sitting here going, yeah, I remember Captain Fun. And Mike just showed up, and he just wanted to serve, and he said, what can I do? And I said, well, Mike, you're, I know you like sports, and we got this Wednesday night program, and you know, we need somebody to kind of run the games. Can you run the kids around and give them a good time for 20 minutes as part of our Word of Life? Well, yeah, sure. He was faithful with that. Next thing you know, we were looking for somebody to take over the children's ministry, and we're like, hey, uh, how about Captain Fun? Hey, Mike, you've done a great job, and, and you, would you think you were ready to do that? Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'm willing to do that. And does that, and next thing you know, he says, hey, you know what, I'm feeling like I'm called to do more ministry to adults and counseling and grow groups, and, and, and so next thing you know, he's a grow group leader and a counselor, and, and, and then next thing you know, he's a deacon, and next thing you know, he's an elder. What, what happened there? It's just Matthew 25, 23. You're faithful in a few things, and you will be put in charge of many things. Hopefully, that's the, the dynamic that's happening all the time in this church, that, that whatever it is, and you, you might be sitting here with sour grapes going, well, how come, how come pastor not talking about me? Well, guess what? What's that to you? Right? That's what Jesus said to Peter. What's that to you? Don't worry about what John, what my will is for John. You do, you follow me. You be faithful to what God has entrusted you at this point in your life and see what happens. Trust the Lord. Bottom line. And so he says you'll have high standing and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Faithful service breeds assurance and confidence. What is this confidence? What is he talking about? When we live lives of integrity, God grants us the ability to speak and to act with confidence, with greater boldness, and he grants us great liberty to, to, to witness to others and to boldly preach and, and, and uh, to, to approach him in prayer. And so what he's saying is the faith of faithful deacons and deaconesses will be strengthened as they follow Christ's example of humble service and they prayerfully depend on him to help them fulfill their role in the church. They'll have great confidence. I'm thankful for that because 
To this day, by the grace of God, we've never had a man that we've invited to be a part of the, the deacons or elders that felt that they were worthy to be an elder or deacon. They were very uh, sheepish, if you will, or very humbled and, and really overwhelmed by the, by the opportunity and, and, and never came with the attitude, well, it's about time you guys recognize me. And so as they get involved in the process and they begin to serve in those roles and as they're faithful, they, 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 it builds their what? Their confidence. Their confidence. Not that they ever get cocky and go, I got this now. This elder deacon stuff, I can do this in my sleep. No, no, it's never arrogance, but it's confidence that they're exactly where God wants them to be. I love the example of Stephen and Philip. Talk about guys who were faithful with a few things and God put them in charge of many things. Stephen and Philip, if you remember Acts chapter 6, those were two of the seven men that were picked to serve tables. Hey, we got some widows that aren't getting fed. Guys, we need to figure out a solution. Can you guys, can you guys get on that and, and fix that problem? Well, they did. They fixed that problem, and it was like, okay, now what do we do? I'm sure there was other administrative issues that they had to deal with along the way. But next thing you know, Stephen and Philip, uh, in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 6, these guys are chosen to serve tables and to, to meet the needs of widows. And in the very next two chapters, chapter 7, you see Stephen becoming the first martyr of the church and being this bold evangelist. And, and then you've got chapter uh, 8, you've got Philip, who's become this evangelist. He leads Simon the sorcerer to Christ, maybe, we're not sure, but he leads Simon the sorcerer to Christ, and then, and then he leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. The point is, God advanced these guys to greater spheres of service than both of them than could have even imagined. They were just saying, hey, I'll help, I'll help wait on tables. And next thing you know, God was using them to do all sorts of crazy stuff for him. I'll close with this. It's a quote from John MacArthur in his little booklet on deacons. He says this, quote, The Lord Jesus himself is the model for those who step into the deacon's role. It is a role of service, of sacrifice, and of commitment to others' needs. The reward of the deacon's office is not the temporal glory that comes from human adulation, but rather the eternal blessing that comes from living a life of spiritual service to the glory of God. What a great perspective to have. Now, I told you from the beginning that this series had a twofold purpose. One was just to remind us theologically uh, of what the Bible teaches about leadership in the local church, but I also told you it was for the practical purposes of helping us evaluate and test certain men uh, who uh, are in our church that we have uh, presented to you as a body uh, to help us affirm uh, that these men are uh, um, qualified to serve in the role of elder and deacon. And so we've been doing that for the last couple of weeks, and we really, really, really appreciate all of your input. Uh, we've had some really good input, and uh, we've evaluated all of it very seriously. Um, and uh, just so you know, um, by the grace of God, all four of the men that we uh, proposed to you as ca candidates for the office of elder deacon have passed the test. Um, we've not found anything uh, from, from, from us or you that would in any way disqualify them from serving uh, in these capacities. So this morning, we have the privilege as a church 
of installing a new elder and three new deacons. And so with the time that we have remaining, I'm just going to invite um, the elders, our present elders, to come. Um, again, in, 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 um, after the pattern of the New Testament, that the elders would appoint other elders and deacons and lay hands on them and pray for them. And so we're going to do that this morning. And so if uh, the present elders could come and just stand up here in the front, and, uh, and then uh, we would also like to invite up our, our, our new elder, Mike Goins. Mike, where are you? Are you hiding out? There you are. And then our three deacons, um, Ken Parkin and uh, Mark Sanderson. And I'm looking for our third. Where is he? Eric. Eric, thank you. Eric, come on up here. 